Good evening and welcome to <laughs> Craig. Good evening, welcome to the second half of our show tonight, the Football Out West Show. It is time for the press box. And uh, Craig, we talked we, we, we talked about in the first part of the show the Socceroos have qualified, but there is an underlying problem to all of this, and we're hoping we're hoping that the World Cup qualification won't camouflage some of the real fundamental issues that are um, concerning our, our Australian football scene, if you like. But, uh, mate, what are the, some of those issues? And, and introduce tonight's topic. Yeah, well, let's, um, let's uh, rather than me talking about it, I think there's massive issues, but uh, let's get the man who wrote a report or an article uh, going back a few weeks ago um, on... on uh, I thought it was uh, it was title, wasn't it? Uh, behind the Socceroos decline. Michael Lynch, good evening. Oh, we can't hear you. No, we've got that problem, have we? We Hello? have. Yeah, no, we've got that issue. Unfortunately, we've got that issue. We're going to try and get Michael um, on the line. Um, if hopefully that might work, we'll see if if, if that will work. Um, in the meantime, um, Lucky, your thoughts, your thoughts about the, this whole issue? Yeah, I mean, I, I am pleased, obviously. I think I'd be a madman to suggest I was upset by the Socceroos qualifying <laughs> for the World Cup. But I do think that there needs to be um, a lot of introspection, a lot of reflection on the manner in which the soccer is qualified in the first place, obviously relying on penalties to get them there. And also the nature of the performances leading up to uh, the playoff game. I mean, look, we got the result on penalties against Peru, but but for mine, let's not kid ourselves into thinking that that was a, a great game. Uh, although the soccer has dominated their opponents, I think there's definitely a case to be made that they were the better side on the day, but Peru were poor. Uh, and the, the Socceroos have certainly had plenty of performances uh, leading up to that game that haven't been convincing and was a large part of the reason behind the sort of doom and gloom atmosphere that, that came into this qualifier, which Australia fortunately won. But we've got a, I think, and... It's a great chance for us to, to talk more about this. It, we can't just be focused on um, the whether or not we qualify. I think we have to think more about how we're doing these things um, and how our approach sets us up for longer-term success because qualifying for the World Cup is great, but I think that Australia is capable of more than just qualifying for the World Cup and that's our that's our grand final effectively. I, I think we can progress to something greater than that, but it does require um, an ideological shift. Yeah, I think you're right uh, there, Lockie. And, um, you know, we, we, we spoke a while back. I think uh, Socceroos went on an 11-12 game unbeaten run where they were playing the likes of, you know, Vietnam, some obscure countries in, in Asia that nobody's heard of, uh, and winning, and everybody's thinking it's great. Then you come up against the powerhouse of Japan and get totally played off the park. Mm. But um, also, but but also Craig, that, in that winning run, the soccer, they, they won, but they weren't that, they weren't convincing. Like they weren't that convincing. Right. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's the false storm. Yeah, I think there's um, maybe it's, it's, it's an area that certainly needs to look, uh, be looked at for one. And hopefully the man in our screen will be able to give a bit of a, an insight into that. Michael, can you hear us? 
Or more importantly, can we hear you? Nope. Still can't. Maybe it's maybe it's uh, maybe it's Adelaide. No, we can't hear you. We'll just carry on as we were talking there. I think um, Lockie, but yeah, you're right, mate. I think the performances weren't weren't good, even against your likes of your your Vietnam, your China, your old man's. We struggled and really, you know, really struggled to get uh, to get anything from those games. And you know, certainly the Japan game that I look back at, we we were poor that night. Um, but, but taking nothing away from Japan and you know Saudis, it seems as if they've got they've got now a bit of a head start on on Australia, whereas if you probably go back 10 or 15 years, they were non-existent. You, you didn't hear from them. So what's changed in that, uh, in that time, do you think? Well, it, it's a mixture of things. I think it's important to mention that, you know, not only have um, certain misgivings in Australian football led towards this decline, it's, it's worth mentioning that a lot of Asian countries have invested really heavily in improving their footballing programs in improving their youth development and that's part of the reason that the that the gap is is being bridged but I do think there's yeah there's an element of complacency that has has set in in Australian football and um some deficiencies uh, I think in terms of what we prioritize in it's not just about how much we invest into youth development, but it's what kind of qualities we're prioritising in the young players we're bringing through. Um, how does that link to our tactical approach? Because I think part of the one of the reasons that uh, Australia has also run into a lot of difficulties, even getting wins against teams against whom they weren't that convincing, smaller Asian countries, um, has to do with our difficulty in, in possession. Um, you know, we are... Uh, a, a nation that has relied, uh, particularly leading into these final crunch games, uh, in the importance of, of physical attributes and trying really hard. And we've seen Graham Arnold go with that Aussie DNA uh, approach. And you know, my concern is that when we prioritise grit and determination above all else, uh, we're sacrificing some of the technical quality that you need when you have the ball to uh, break down, t- you know, Asian teams who play in a very compact style. And yeah, maybe the answer or maybe the, the luck has broken our way on this occasion. But it doesn't always um, doesn't always work. You know, hope is 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 not a reliable strategy for for qualifying for the World Cup. And, Okay, guys, just one second. I think just one second, gents. I think we may have Michael on the on the on the line. Michael, can we get? Can you hear us now? Yeah, I can hear you. Uh, can you hear me? That's the big issue. <laughs> yeah, we got you, Michael. Oh right. Well, that's something, isn't it? Hey, we got a result of sorts. Bit like <laughs> <Socceroos>, really. <laughs> we got where we got it. We needed to get Michael. Thanks for joining us. We really do appreciate it. <laughs> the technical yeah. issues. Uh, now, first of all, let's talk about that article. Um, so the article you wrote, there it is, um, from Kings of Oceania to Asian Minnows Behind the Socceroos Decline. Look, there were some really interesting people that you had on there. John Aloisi, Simon Colosimo, Ron Smith, um, Australian Player Union boss Bo Bush, uh, Lou Sticker, Nick Galatis as well. 
out of all of their their comments, which was the one that I guess most resonated with what they had to say about the decline of the Socceroos in Asia? Well, I suppose basically the common theme was they were all saying that Australia is just not producing the calibre and quality of players that it was um, two decades ago. Now, you can say the golden generation were outliers and every country you know, has a period when it, when it sort of has a kind of confluence of uh, circumstances where some good players come together. You know, in the, in the 90s, Denmark had, had a, a great team, you know, won the Euros in 92, in the 86 World Cup were great. Um, yeah, haven't sort of hit those heights since, yeah, I remember 2014 covering the World Cup in Brazil. Costa Rica, I think, topped a group, including Italy, Uruguay and England. Um, and they had a sort of co group of players who all came together. So you do get this uh, from time to time. But I think in general, the, the kind of overarching message was that the development systems as currently constituted aren't working. Uh, the, a number of the players probably were, in a way, a little bit too comfortable. Um, you know, that, that the A-League had been really good in that it established a professional setup, but it also gave players a safety net that if they didn't succeed in Europe, they could always come back and, you know, be quite comfortable back here, which wasn't the case, you know, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, when that golden generation were heading off to Europe, they knew that if they didn't make it there, it was a life of semi-professional football, if at all, back in Australia, um, you know, and they were two of the, the key factors, are, are, I think, that, that came through from that. Um, and, you know, I, I, but I don't think it's necessarily an issue just in Australia. The other message that I was getting from coaches and people were that um, a lot of the time the hunger just doesn't seem to be there across the Western world in many ways. Now, you can say, well, that's not true. Look at Germany, look at the big European countries. But you've also got to realise that in some ways it's a question of critical mass and scale there. Football is the only sport that's played essentially in most of those countries. So um, they're more likely, even if the hunger isn't there and too many kids are playing PlayStation and not bothered in the way that kids were 20 or 30 years ago, you still, because you've got just a bigger number to, to, to work from, you're still going to get enough. You know, you only need a squad of 20, really, don't you? Top players, you can win a World Cup with a squad of 15 mm. top players. And um, and that's that seemed to be the kind of message. There's there's a bit of jumbling going on there. I know in what I've said, but you asked me what the key takeouts were, and they were probably the three. Lucky. Uh, I mean, the the article it makes a lot of mention to this this idea of obviously mental toughness and uh, lacking resilience, and and part of that is related to. Yeah, the A-League providing something of a safety net. Do, do you subscribe to that ideology as well, Michael? I mean, how do, how do you see uh, what the A-League has provided for, for young players and has it changed uh, their mentality? They, have we lost that killer instinct in Australian footballers? seemed to be the message from uh, those who were there and uh, who I spoke to, and some of them are actually coaching or have coached 
the current generations of players. So perhaps the A-League has given, uh, I mean, it's sort of lifted the boats in the sense that there's a professional league and players can earn a good living by not going away anymore. But perhaps for some of them, not all of them, but for some of them, yeah, maybe maybe there is a lack of toughness and resilience. Look, I'm an old bloke, you know. I'm in my sixties here. I do have sons in their my twen- their twenties uh, and that, so I am au fait with a younger generation. They do think differently uh, to the way that I did was in when I was in my twenties. So maybe they have different perspectives or um, a kind of different emphasis on different things. When I was in my 20s, I wasn't a professional footballer, but I was a professional journalist from an early age. And I would work hard, work extra, make extra phone calls, work six, seven days, take calls on my days off, go and meet contacts on my days off, all sorts of things to get ahead and get on. I'm not saying that young journalists now don't do that, but I do think that there is a kind of feeling in society amongst people in their 20s that maybe work and career isn't everything, uh, that you need a more balanced life, and perhaps some of the younger players in the A-League share that view. Yeah, look, I'm um, I'm sort of with you on that, uh, Michael. I've had uh, conversations on this very show about uh, players coming back from Europe too early, um, having not really given it a chance, and without mentioning the names because there'd be too many to to actually mention. That I think that safety net of the A League is is a problem. Um, you know, players go go over to Europe. <clears throat> they they trial with a club or they have a season with a club. They may not get the games that they like, and they think, oh, this is too hard. I don't want to try. And I think it's a I think it's a um, a a um, a real area of concern, and I put uh, I'm in the fifties bracket only just though, Michael. But I put it down to our, <laughs> we put I put it down to um, um, our issue, our problem as parents of that particular age, because parents uh, players don't want for anything nowadays. It doesn't matter whether you're a footballer or whether you're in some kind of other sport. Mums and dads give everything. Everybody's got a mobile phone. Everybody's got a PlayStation. Everybody's got a 65-inch plasma screen on their wall in their bedroom. So it's a very different mindset now to what it was, certainly in my playing day, where you had to work. That's the point I was making there, and uh, and I think it's one John Aloisi made, and it's one Lou Sticker made, Simon Colosimo made it, you know, about about hunger, I mean, um, and and also, a lot of our players, they don't even look to go to Europe anymore. They know the money in Korea and Japan is really good as well, and it's not going to be as testing, is it? It's not going to be as hard to crack it for um, a a regular role in a mid or top third J-League team as it would be to to crack it uh, for a role in a mid-table Premier League side. And okay, they won't get the money that they get in the Premier League, but they still get a lot of money compared to the average person. And I think sometimes that's the mentality as well. I know talking to blokes, you know, Bozer and Robbie Slater and guys who, who went there and did it when there was no alternative, but that, that they sometimes feel that maybe that's, that's also an issue. Literally, the, the, the price of, of football is also something that links into this too, because as we said, uh, parents providing for 
their youngsters, giving them what they need, paying a lot of money in in the system that we have to get their parents, uh, their children, sorry, into into NPL academies. Are we also with that sort of user pays approach um, losing certain players who might have that kind of killer instinct that, you know, that the people you've spoken to feel we've lost yeah, because they I can't mean, afford to access it? Yeah, that was one that was raised very strongly by Simon Colosimo um, in, in that piece I did. I mean, Simon said he was one of three sons. He said his parents couldn't have afforded to, to put him into an MPL academy. He said, so they couldn't, they couldn't now, never mind then. But, um, but you know, I, and I actually agree with it. Football is, in this country, a bit like the uh, USA in a lot of ways, it's embourgeois. It's become a kind of middle-class pursuit given the amount of money that's required. You know, I mean... It annoys the hell out of me that you get one Sudanese player who plays in the AFL and he gets front-page treatment. I mean, how many kids of Sudanese extraction are playing in the MPL or in lower leagues in Victoria? Um, and, and I think there's a lot of people from lower socioeconomic age groups, uh, not age groups, lower socioeconomic uh, demographics who really, you know, can't afford some of these elite uh, elite training programs, and and I think that's where the game needs to really sort itself out. I I was around when Frank Lowy came in, created the A League, the Big Bang in oh four oh five. If I look back to it now, do you know what I reckon the greatest legacy Frank Lowy and the Lowy family could have made if they created a kind of trust fund or scholarship fund of however many million dollars to be able to pay the the playing dues and to be able to pay for the academy program subs for talented kids from lower socioeconomic backgrounds because I think the game is probably missing a lot of those kids. Yeah. Well as you know as you know Michael, back in the UK those academy kids do not pay any football. In fact um, you know, when when I was playing, even at a, 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 a good standard back in my early days, we were paying ten dollars subs a week. So we actually had to pay to, for the privilege of, of playing football. And that's, you, I mean, if that happens, yeah, you the 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 number of players playing football would uh, would increase massively. I would have thought, but it is a it is a stumbling block, yeah. isn't it? On the yeah. you know, likes of you've got I club- those thirty days playing at Wormwood Scrubs on a Sunday morning <laughs> when you're half hungover. You're paying a couple of quid in subs and then the treasurer nicks it all and goes and puts it behind the bar anyway. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. All right, this might be a great opportunity to uh, bring our next guest on as well. Um, uh, Michael, thank you for joining us. We're speaking to a senior football journalist from the Fairfax Media, Michael Lynch. But we've also got someone who's um, well known to the show. He's been on the show before and um, and it's an absolute pleasure to welcome back to the show um, Rob Sherman, former technical director of Football Australia, uh, mate, it's great to have you on the board on the show. And uh, how are you? How's things? First of all, good. Thanks. Hopefully, you can hear me. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. can. Oh, that's okay. Uh, no, it's great to be back, and thanks very much for the invite. Um, all is well here in New Zealand at the minute. So, yep, um, looking forward to the conversation. So you're out yeah, in New I- Zealand at the moment, yes, Rob. Any plans on yes, any plans yeah, on coming in, back in Christchurch? Any Sorry? plans to come back into Australia? Well, I'd always love to come back. I've got a real affinity to Australia. Don't know why, to be honest, but um, I do. Uh, I had a season there in the in eighty two, eighty three, and uh, 
for some reason, I count myself as an Aussie. So uh, a Welsh Aussie, but there you go. Very good. Yeah. Now, Rob, you've read the article by Michael. Michael's on the on the uh, line as we speak. Uh, um, what are, What are your thoughts about the article, and what are the, your thoughts about some of the um, some of the contributions by by some of the luminaries from Australian football, past and present, who who certainly have got their opinions on on what is wrong with the Socceroos at the moment and the reasons behind their decline in Asia. Well, I think I think just the first point that was raised about the mental toughness and the resilience. I, I tend to agree that, uh, you know, it can, it can be very comfortable. Um, ultimately, I think, you know, the, the two things jump out to me. First of all, there was the under-20s rule and now the under-21 rule that you have to have three on the roster. And then you have a minimum wage. So they jumped straight away to, say, 60K or whatever the minimum wage is set by the PFA. Well, it should be the minimum wage as in the national minimum wage. Therefore, if I don't get a deal at victory, say, I put myself in the market with someone else. And it becomes the hardship or the reality of professional football becomes much more apparent. And I don't think there should be any limit on the number of players. In other words, the fact that three have to be on the roster. At 22, I might not be ready, so I keep moving till I am ready. I get the gig and then I'm, on, I'm off. So in other words, we've made it comfortable. Um, and I do think the league potentially, you know, in some cases overpays players in terms of market value and in terms of global value. So I think there's an element of truth in that. I do think that also, uh, as Michael touched on, it's endemic with the current generation that they, their motivations are different. No two ways about it. Um, you know, the days that the golden generation would have accrued thousands of hours of street football and playing with their mates, that's gone. That is completely gone. And so it, you're dealing with a different human being completely. And therefore, we need to really drive intrinsic motivation at grassroots level and, and the like to get people to be intrinsically driven. And, you know, and unfortunately, with the modern parent, there's also a lot of, you know, they want their children to be famous. And, and I think we sort of, uh, the nicest term, we blow bubbles. <laughs> Do we think Far that um, do we think that players nowadays, Rob are and Michael, um, are entitled because they pay their two thousand dollars MPL oh. registration fees that they feel entitled to play um, and all the all the the nonsense that goes with that? Is that a big issue, Michael? It is for me. Um, well, I, I don't know if the players feel it. I suspect their parents feel it. If they're shelling out thousands of dollars in uh, you know, subscriptions to be part of academies and their kids are on the bench or not playing very often, um, I imagine, you know, again, this is all really, it's a generation of parents below me, really. But, um, but you know, from what I see and what I'm told and what I hear, there is a lot of input and they're all sort of, you know, um, making their opinions felt very much that, we're paying a lot of money. We should be getting just as good a go, even if that kid is maybe only got half the ability of another kid. And, you know, uh, the thing is the kids know. I remember uh, when one of my sons was playing in a team and there was a lot of pressure in the last game of the season to play uh, three or four boys who hadn't had a lot of football, but this particular side 
he was in. They needed to win to finish top two or something and get promoted. And um, and the kids themselves, the three who were going to start because they haven't played much, they said at one point, no, no, we'll go on the bench because we want to win this game and we know the other boys are better than us. So the kids themselves know it. Uh, they did then anyway. That was 15 years ago. I don't know whether your typical 14-year-old now would do that. But I, I certainly feel in answer to your question that there is a degree of that user pays mentality. Um, I'm paying a lot of money for this uh, for this service and I deserve to get value for my money. Yeah. Rob, your thoughts? Well, I don't disagree. I think the thing is that when you're investing like that, you are investing in a service and you expect a service and quid pro quo, etc. I mean, I, ultimately, when I was at the Victory, for instance, we went to a non-user pay, so the kids didn't pay. None of the players paid. Um, not, I don't know what the situation is there now, but that was the case for three years at least because we were investing in the player. And that ultimately, the irony is that Predominantly, the A-League are going to produce players for the MPL. The, the reality is that 0.02% of players earn a living. 998 do don't. So actually, in youth development, you're developing players for someone else. That's what you're doing. And MPL will find that in their own right as well. But I think the thing is that, um, touched on something Michael said there around, you know, the, the fact is that we need to look at a long-term development process as well. So promotion, relegation, youth football means that what you do is you select performers you select people who are ready to win you the game now at 13, not the players with potential. Mm -hmm. And so there's a whole raft of issues that lie into why it's very important to have an academy system where you have competitive games, admittedly, but actually the results are meaningless. They don't actually indicate potential. They indicate current performance. And then national teams can be a big deflected as well. You can do really well in an under-17s because you've picked mature players, but you might have left out players or not even looked at players who have more potential. And again, in the national team cycle, we look at cycles. So if you're born in the wrong year, for instance, and I'm an under-16 in the under-17 cycle, I'm ignored till I'm under-20. Now, in Wales, we had a situation where we had a 15s team, a 16s team, a 17s team, a 19s team, a 20s team. You didn't miss their cycle. We knew every player who had potential. Some didn't play because of their maturity, but they didn't miss out. And I'm not going to name them, but there's a few. Some of the current team that qualified for the World Cup did not play in the 15s and 16s because of their physicality, but they were tracked into the 17s and the like. So there's a whole raft of issues. Really good, it's not a simple really point there, Rob. You know, a lot of junior football. It is about getting results, and his point about national teams. Um, well, you know, look at like the best striker in England, one of the best in the world, Harry Kane. I mean, he hardly he hardly got going yeah. until he was twenty two. He, he he was in the Tottenham academy, but he hardly played, and he was sent on loan three or four times to different teams. He only came through really in his early twenties. Um, that Australian team that made the final of the Under Seventeen World Cup. In 99, I mean, they lost in a penalty shootout to Brazil in the World Cup final. You'd have thought, right, this is a, a generation to build on. But how many of them had serious international careers or even serious long-term um, professional careers? I mean, I'm, off the top of my head, Josh Kennedy, 
uh, was in that squad. Jade North was in that squad. Squad and Scotty McDonald was in that squad. But um, I'm, I'm struggling to think of too many more who went on and really made an impact uh, at national level. So, yeah, you're, you're, you're absolutely right, Rob. The, 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 the junior results are no guarantee of future performance. And, and I guess coaches are all, all, always in a position where if we don't get a result, I'll lose my job. So the, the yeah. onus is on the coach to, all right, you know, Tonsha, you're a big, strong lad. I'm going to play you up top rather than this smaller, quicker mm-hmm. kid who might be technically better, but I'm going to get a result in this under-16s game with you, not him. And, and so there's a whole raft of issues that, that do need to be kind of um, unpacked. Well, it's an interesting discussion. I agree, mate. Yeah. Football that we show, gents. Uh, we're going to um, we're talking here with the senior football journalist from Fairfax Media, Michael Lynch, and also the former technical director of the uh, Football Australia, Rob Sherman. Gents, we're going to take a very very short commercial break. Um, thanks to our major sponsor this year, George Caroline Springs George Cross Football Club. When we return, we're going to continue this. Uh, we're going to continue this uh, rather riveting discussion. Don't go away, folks. George's on Vista is in the heart of Fraser Rise. You'll find us at Caroline Springs George Cross. Looking for a bit of fun with your meals? Tuesday night is bingo night. Bingo books are $2. Eyes down at 7 And we have a special bingo menu for you to choose from, so be sure to get in early and grab a bite to eat beforehand. Friday night is poker night. Registration is from 6.30pm, with poker starting at 7.30pm. Why not join us beforehand for happy hour? Kicks off at 5.30. We're also on Uber Eats, so you can enjoy your favourite Georgie's meals in the comfort of your own home. Find us on the app. Dining in? Be sure to book your table to avoid disappointment. Bookings can be made via our website, georgiesonvista.com.au. Welcome back to the Football Outwish Show, and we're speaking with the senior football journalist from Fairfax Media, Michael Lynch and also former technical director of Football Australia, Rob Sherman. Now, Rob, we've, we've spoken a little bit, obviously, you and Craig are of Welsh background, and we've spoken about the Welsh uh, qualification for the World Cup, and it wasn't something that happened overnight. It was, it was a long-term plan and a long-term strategic way of thinking. Um, tell us a bit more about that and how that sort of eventuated. Well, it was initiated by Jimmy Shoulder, and obviously Jimmy had a history in Australian football as well. Um, back in the mid-90s, the momentum grew, um, certainly in the late 90s to two, early 2000s, where mini football was introduced, where it was non-competitive. So in other words, in some cases, you played three games on a Saturday. No one counted the score, etc., etc. Um, we also then, obviously, the advent and flourishing of the football league academies so we wrexham swansea cardiff had them in those days newport didn't but that came along later and the fact that kids um could access you know they're on the borders they could access the english academy so you had players in the academy structure we had the european club license which came into force with our non-league amateur clubs had to meet the european club license so we had academies in those and just while I'm on that, uh, we've mentioned the term academy, and I've, I have to be honest and say, I think it's the most abused word in Australian football. <laughs> Everyone's got an academy, but there's no accountability or no quantification. And, uh, you know, ultimately, I think that that's 
the first step is to find out who's really operating at a level that you can use that word with. And then you then you might find out where the best environments are, where the true investment is going into youth development, etc. Anyway, I digress, but my apologies there. But <laughs> yeah, so it was a long term plan. It linked. You know, it's not governed, Rob. Sense, That's the problem here, is it? It's not governed. So there's there's no, there's, there's, acad- there's, there's academies or as as I like to call them, yeah. soccer uh, coaching clinics, etc. That the people are taking them that haven't got any coaching licenses might have played a bit of football, but not got any coaching licenses whatsoever. So it's not governed. On a no back back in the day back home, um, that was part of the criteria for opening a a soccer school of sorts that you have to be accredited by the football association. Um, and I think that would, well, it, that would yeah. certainly go a long way here. Well, when Howard set up the academy scheme in the mid nineties, obviously it was predominantly around, you know, coach qualifications and um, facilities. When the triple P came in, that was the game breaker that completely mm. um, raised the bar. Because you had to actually state what your program was, what your you know your philosophy was. Just mention for those that don't know what the, the players, you know? just mention for those that don't know what the triple P is, Rob. Well, it's a it's a mechanism that sort of is the academy category one, two, three. So a category one is the highest level, category three the lowest. In fairness, the Premier League invests in all categories and all clubs. So if you're a category three and you're outside the Premier League, you still get some revenue, which uh, obviously offsets the burden of that. Um, and the reality is, you know, I, I was involved with Everton at one time. You know, Everton were saying they had 49 academy players playing in the Football League one weekend, but none of them were in Everton's first team. So they were producing players, same old thing, but they were producing them for someone else. And that's the reality in youth development. You will get through one or two, maybe, in a season, if you're lucky. Or over a few seasons, you'll get the one pig payday that comes down again, but you're producing it for the whole game. It's a no-one infrastructure if you like or egotism we're actually you know by doing it well the whole level of the game goes up it's a it's a factor and and ultimately going back to the Wales thing a whole lot of circumstances came together they were planned and the biggest thing was continuity so for instance Jimmy Shoulder was handed over to Mike Rigg Mike then left and went with Jimmy to Sheffield United Mark Hazelwood came in no clean sweep Mark just put his own stamp onto that. Uh, in fact, he broke down some barriers, made a huge difference in that. I followed on with, from Mark. No clean sweep. We just built on what was in place. And this is the thing. You've got to be careful you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. There are some good things in Australian football. What you don't need is someone coming and sweeping them all off the table. What they need to do is it's got to be evolution and not revolution. Michael, when we talk about evolution, not revolution, um, that's a very good point. When we're looking for for solutions to to this problem, obviously it's not going to be something that's going to be a one-stop gap that that, that fills everything, one-stop solution. It'll be a series of solutions probably over maybe many years and maybe over many decades. What do you think is the priority that needs to be tackled um, amongst all of these series of problems? Um, well, I think some of the issues we've we've touched on uh, go a long way if we could evolve some of them. I think the cost of playing is a really big issue. I think I think if somehow, and I don't know how, um, they could get football into schools as a 
primary choice or equal primary choice, um, that would be a really important uh, way of, of developing the playing cohort because you'd expose a, a lot more kids to it. Um, on an absolutely competitive level, if you want to look at it from tops down, I personally uh, feel that um, at some stage we do need to get this national second division going. And um, eventually there does need to be, sooner in my view rather than later, a promotion and relegation system because when you grow the um, infrastructure of the game, um, you will give more opportunity. If we had a second division, um, uh, if we had 16 team top division, 16 team second division, there'd obviously be a financials uh, of all those clubs depending on what division they're in but you would get far more chances for younger players to play in a much more competitive environment with the reward of promotion to the top division there and I think that would sharpen minds improve competitiveness and not just for players I mean it would create professional opportunities for a raft of coaches um, who are underutilised at this point. You know, we all know that it's uh, very difficult, you know, when you've only got 11 professional clubs to make a full-time living. Um, Coaches need an incentive to go through the education system and process themselves, particularly as they're having to pay a lot of the time for their own education. So um, I I think, you know, if you wanted a sledgehammer to crack a nut, uh, one one concept answer that would probably be it, along with reducing the cost of entry and the barriers to entry for players at youth level. I want to touch back on something we were discussing earlier about attributes of players, and I, I don't think that the only issue is that we're producing less players that go on to um, feature in prominent leagues, but it's also producing less of a certain type of player, particularly those who are maybe more uh, technically skilled, creatively minded, and and a process or a part of that um, has been sort of down to what both Robin and and Michael were mentioning before, which is a lot of um, results-based thinking from, from coaches. So I guess what I'm asking is in terms of, producing more of those kind of players who are um, more technically proficient, more creatively minded, that might help us alleviate some of the deficiencies the Socceroos have had in possession. How much of a responsibility do, do coaches play in our lack of production of those kinds of players? And if they have done, what, what can actually be done to stimulate uh, the development of more players with those sort of uh, technically proficient attributes that you could make the argument that Australian football is is currently lacking. Shall I answer that? Or yeah, have yeah, a go? Yeah. I think there's two things to that. I think, first of all, you know, the game didn't necessarily produce them in the past. They played thousands of hours of football, you know, in a various situation with their mates, maybe at the club, and you actually develop a range of skills so whether that's uh you know uh, you become a creative or you just become you know very good at some th- particular facet if you were to say where the creative players come from so brazil is the biggest exporter of talent in the world 
And actually, most of those kids still play 80% of their football in informal environments. Now, so coaching, quality coaching can shortcut that. There's no two ways about it. But the word is quality. And actually working on the individual facet, not the team facet. So it's about individual development within the team context, not the team context with a bit of individual development. And it can be done. There's no two ways about it. Is there enough time on the fields, though, Rob, to be able to do that? I've just done a quick calculation there based on uh, a 22-week season. And it's if coaches, if teams are being coached hour and a half, three times a week, plus a game on the weekend of 90 minutes, that's just 7,900 hours a year that we're giving. Yeah, into now, if you look at it, this is where, for me, the academy system is so important, Craig, is that... You have a system of academies, which maybe not link the competition structure. It's a 40-plus week season. It's four contacts plus a game, so say from 14, 15 plus, three contacts plus a game below. At the very least, you'll produce better players. You won't necessarily produce world beaters en masse, but you will produce the so-called, you know, if you produce two a year, over 10 years, you've got the 20 that Flint, um, uh, Mike's talking about. You know, in a national team, you usually have a 10-year age span across the team. So the reality is you need to be training and playing from a relatively young age and acquiring a lot of hours, and that means that you need to be in a programme. Now, the bottom, bottom line is, the, the, you know, if you compare to Europe in a typical season, over a five-year, over a 10-year period, I've, in Europe I've accrued 10 years in Australia, I've accrued five. I've paid half the amount. So therein lies one of your issues straight away. The season is too long, too short, especially for those who choose to, to, to go on. Sorry. Go on, I think uh, Rob's hit the nail on the head there. In, in a lot of ways, it's about time. Time invested. And, and that goes back to something I was saying earlier across the Western world uh, about kids just... You know, they have other things to do now. I mean, yeah. you, you talk to some of those players from that golden generation and, and they grew up in a different social um, environment. Uh, certainly digital media wasn't the thing it is. And, you know, uh, uh, and they'll tell you, well, like Johnny Aloisi did a really good interview with the PFA when they did a, um, a big um, report on this sort of issue about player development a few years ago and John said well when I was a kid growing up in Adelaide we would just go to Adelaide City at nine o'clock in the morning on a Sunday and I'd play my game and Ross would play his game and then we'd just kick a ball around behind the grandstand and wait for the seniors to play at three o'clock and and I don't think you're seeing too much of that now uh, I don't miss, I mean obviously kids can't go to, to Mob and Victory they haven't got a home ground in that they can't go and kick around on Damey Park. They could go to Gosh's Paddock, but do they? Are they turning up having informal, impromptu games at Gosh's Paddock at, uh, you know, 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning if Victory are playing at five? Probably not. Um, and and it's a point that I, I know that Ron Smith, who, you know, Ron, Ron's been around a very long time. Um, you know, he's a man in his 70s now, but he's still consulting to the FA and he was the coach at EAIS um, in the in the 80s and, and 90s. And he said to me, even now, he goes, you, 
it, it's about informal football. It's about street football. It's about getting as many touches as you can in a fun environment. He said, and the creative players, the game breakers, in a way, they're born rather than made. But as Rob said, you can you can help make some of that. And and he says that's that's why you look at all the game breakers across the world, even in the big European clubs. Many of them are from Latin America or Africa. Essentially kids who grow up with not much and they've got nothing else to do bar play football and uh, you know I'm not suggesting that Australia needs to you know um, trash its economic environment and create massive uh, poverty so we can have a good football team but that that is kind of also it, 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 it's a factor that plays into you know why some of these players probably aren't developing those creative abilities one thing that will make obviously a, sorry, a big input. Um, sorry, uh, didn't didn't mean to, to jump on your on your toes. But uh, well, one thing that obviously Michael mentioned before that will make a, a big impact on getting minutes into players is the arrival of that national second division. Now, naturally, you assume yeah, there will be more opportunities for a lot of different models and methodologies that have been floated as to. Uh, how best that league can be executed and uh, sort of a question that I want to put to, to both uh, Michael and yourself, Rob. Um, one of the things that has been floated as part of that is the inclusion of academy sides in a national second division. How, how do you feel to uh, that sort of, of proposal? Is that something that we need to do or is just the appearance of a second division with uh, the best of the best in the MPL enough to get more young players playing? I think maybe, uh, in my opinion, the second tier, or in fact, all if, if you could call in that professional football, you know, under professional football, then then there needs to be a minimum requirement for youth development and the women's game. You can't divorce the two, but ultimately a minimum requirement that you have to have a category that meets a certain standard. Otherwise, you're just in a situation where, again, the focus reverts to just this season, next this season's team, and then it's the cycle of go and get payer through the nose for players, etc., etc., on a cyclical basis. And I, I think that's not healthy for the game. It might be what some of the uh, second division owners want, but it's not healthy for the game. Gents, unfortunately, we've run out of time. We're going to have to probably um, uh, cut it short or not cut it short. We've already gone into extra time. Uh, Gents, we really appreciate this. And I think we've just touched the tip of the iceberg. Michael, we'd love to have you on the show again next week for part two of this conversation. Likewise, Rob. I think, think as as I've just said, I think we've just touched the tip of the iceberg. And um, there's so much more that needs to be analysed and delved into it. Uh, Michael, um, Rob, would you guys be willing to come on the show again next week and we'll continue this uh, conversation? Yeah, yeah happy enough. Uh, yeah, I don't know what my diary's like, but if it's clear, <laughs> I'm happy, happy to make some time for you, chaps. Awesome, Rob. Yeah, no, I'd love to. Love to, love to join the conversation. Awesome. Yeah, we got a week to sort out your microphone as well, Michael. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Jess, thank you for joining us tonight. We really do appreciate it. It's been a riveting, riveting conversation and certainly one that we can see by the chats and the, um, the um, comments in the comment section um, has really captured the um, attention of a lot of our li- viewers and listeners. Um, uh, Jess, thanks once again. We're going to have to leave it there, unfortunately. Right. Good luck. Good night. All right, we'll speak to you both next week. Thanks yeah. again. Thanks. Good night.
Gents, that was an awesome um, conversation. We've run out of time. We've really, really gone well over time. Um, Lockie, thank you for joining us in. We'll have to get you on next week as well, mate. You've done such a good job, but we're going to have to get you on next week. And, uh, yep, next week we'll probably have uh, a slight – we might even have a little bit of a presentation about what we're talking about. But, uh, yeah, really interesting conversation. Last words, Lockie, first of all to you. Uh, yeah, I mean, always, always great to to listen to to people like Michael and Rob who have been around the game for such a long time, and I, th- I think Lynchy in particular had some some good in- insights, things that I perhaps haven't considered before, and I hope that's um, uh, a sentiment shared by everyone who's uh, who's watched as well. But yeah, it's been been a, a pleasure to chat about it. Craig, um, any last words, um, your thoughts about tonight's conversation? No, it was great. I mean, like, like you said, Tosh, we, we haven't really even started. There's so much we can talk about. Um, you know, we did try and get um, uh, John Aloisi on. He was uh, all for coming on tonight. Unfortunately, he was flying out to, to Europe for a well-deserved holiday this evening, actually. Um, but, um, look, we've got Rob and, and Michael, and um, let's get them back on next week. And, um, you know, if, if any of our listeners do have any questions, Drop us a drop us a message on uh, on Messenger on uh, on Facebook, um, and uh, and we'll try and do our best to get them answered next week. But uh, yeah, plenty plenty still to talk about. Absolutely, good on you. Um, thank you very much for joining us on tonight's Football Out West show. It was a it was a, an epic um, epic um, episode. We've got some big um, shows coming on on throughout the week. Tomorrow night it's the Geelong Region Soccer Show. Steve Curtin will be back alongside me there. And we've also got a big, big, big Ozcrow Soccer Show episode this Tuesday night. Um, the Geelong Region Soccer Show is on at 8 p.m. The Ozcrow Soccer Show at 8.30 p.m. We talk about performance coaches. We talk about that mentality. Um, just we need to confirm something tomorrow, but we may have one of the best in the business as far as performance coaches talking about elite footballers and what needs they need, what attributes they need to have um, uh, to succeed at the top level. Um, that will be a major feature, major topic of conversation on the Ozcrow Soccer Show podcast Tuesday night. Folks, thank you once again for being a part of tonight's show. We've had to rush it, unfortunately, but we've gone well, well over time. Uh, until next uh, next Sunday night, gents, good night and have a great week. Thank you. Bye-bye. Yeah, well. <laughs>